Hiya and welcome to episode 67 of the Reds Unrestricted podcast. I'm your host Chloe Bloxham and I'm joined as ever by David Comerford and Dan Club as we reflect back on that Liverpool massive comeback uh, where they did beat Aston Villa 2-1 and also we will be reflecting on some of the biggest news this week. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts. Uh, well, first of all, let's get um, our match reviews, three-word match reviews from last night's game uh, as the fresh. So, David, I'll come to you first. Well, I went with uh, hanging in there for my uh, three words um, because that's certainly what I felt like. I know we might talk about the sort of title race situation a bit, but after kind of two minutes of that game or however long it was when Villa scored. Um, I guess I was kind of fearing the worst a little bit um, and whether that would kind of be a bit of a nail in the coffin kind of game. But, you know, it's just good, I think, ultimately to come off come off that game um, and and that performance, which I'm sure we'll, we'll delve into and, and still be in the fight. Yeah, 100%. That um, that early goal, I just had to shake my head at that one, to be honest. Um, didn't even ta- get time to sit and just enjoy at least two minutes of the game uh, before I was in all bits of worry. Uh, my three-word match review would be grinding through games, and it was one of those where before kick-off, I said, we're probably going to have to grind through this, um, and then all the way through... At not what point one point did I feel safe in that game? Liverpool dug deep, um, and they got the result they needed. Dan, what did you think of the game? Um, yeah, I mean, on the game, like you both alluded to, it was a bit of a grind. It wasn't particularly free flowing vintage Liverpool like we've come to expect. But you know, you've got to win games in different ways, and this side can certainly do that. So we deserve a lot of credit. I I was very impressed with the character because I think when we went a goal behind in the first few minutes, I think the players were probably a bit shocked by that. I certainly was watching. Um, but to kind of get back on the horse, as it were, and equalise minutes later showed a lot of, like I say, mental fortitude really, and just shows why we are such a good side. Um, in terms of three word match review, mine was a nod towards the title race as well. Um, and it was not dead yet because, like I said, I think to come back in a game like that away from home when the crowd were right up for it as they were against the Villa side that were right up for it as well just shows why we are in this title race with what is a, a superb Manchester City side. Like, we're a high quality team, no doubt about it, but we've also got other qualities that make us as good as we are and keep us in races. So, yeah, that would be my sort of general assessment on the game. Yeah, and I'll come back to you on the first goal. You said it, it shocked the Reds. It was a bit of disbelief from me um, at the fact that we'd start the game and we just looked all over the place from minute one. Um, and I want to talk about the midfield in a minute um, because from the off, it just didn't look right at all. But... For the first 25, 30 minutes there, I thought the Reds were just... It was like they didn't, they couldn't handle the press of Aston Villa. And everyone turns around and says, usually, they're not dealing with the press of Liverpool. But it, it felt like the other way round. We couldn't pick a pass into that midfield and, and make it stick. What did you think? 
Um, yeah, it was. I mean, listen, it was a it was a diabolical start. Quite frankly, um, the goal itself was was a comedy of errors, really. At the back, obviously, you have Simakas and Matip collide, um, and it was actually reminiscent. A lot of the pre-game um, build-up stuff was talking about the seven-two, obviously at Villa Park when. No fans were in the stadium and they showed like an Adrian error early on when we conceded and you think. And then we did something relatively similar last night and you start, yeah, just for a split second, you think, surely, surely not. Um, but yeah, it, it was a sluggish start to the game. I don't know whether it was indicative of Villa flying out the blocks and us not coping or a relatively different side playing. I'd say that we haven't seen a lot of Curtis Jones. You mentioned the midfield there and and the inability to press. I mean, Curtis Jones hasn't played a great amount of football recently. Simicast the same. Um, so maybe they were sort of like teething issues we had in the opening stages. We certainly dealt with it better as it went on. Um, and obviously we're going to touch on the Fabinho situation probably a little bit later in more depth. But pff, he was he was miles off the pace, quite frankly, in the early stages. So, yeah, there definitely were issues. But... They were just issues across the field, really. Um, thankfully, we managed to regroup and deal with them a little bit better. Yeah, you mentioned Fabinho there. Um, I, we will talk about him in more depth later on, but it did feel like one of his errors ended up costing him an injury. Um, and he had about four of them before he was subbed off, and that felt pretty quickly in itself. Um, as for Liverpool, the reaction, uh, like Dan alluded to there, David, um, we bounced back. Swift reply from us, once again, a very, very awful goal uh, from a Villa perspective to concede. Um, but we got ourselves back in there. What did you think from that moment that we'd kick on? Um, because I think for me personally, since Henderson came in, that's when we gained control. But there was enough frantic opportunities there that Liverpool just did not take. Yeah, I think that's a pretty decent assessment of it, to, to be fair. I mean, with the first goal, obviously there's this thing going around of it being offside in the kind of the first phase of that move. And yeah, he was offside. Like, um, there's no denying that. Um, so from that point of view, there was kind of an element of, of misfortune there and, and maybe the officials not doing their job properly, but also like enough time had, had passed probably. Um, and I think under the rules, you know, if there's kind of that much that goes on in between the offside and the goal, then there's certainly kind of nothing wrong with it from that point of view. Um, it's just a bit of a quirk that Alisson could actually have let the initial shot in from Watkins and then Liverpool wouldn't have been behind in the first place. Um, but that would have been an incredible amount of confidence in the uh, Liverpool line to to do that. But I think the interesting thing about it was that like the high line that we have relies so much on Liverpool being like incredibly precise and using VAR um, because any sort of slight sort of incursion offside is going to be picked up and he wasn't far offside but I guess it's kind of a loophole where if the official doesn't raise his flag at the end of the first phase and then the offside doesn't really kind of count for anything and um, I think that's like a, a tiny you know a, a tiny loophole like I say um, so that was a really poor start obviously and I think whilst there was the complaint about it being offside the thing that really struck me early on was that Villa came out with more aggression. They looked more focused. And that was 
really concerning because obviously we know that Villa, they're playing Liverpool at home. Certainly the time of the kickoff, all things like that are going to make for like a really strong atmosphere in the game. But the only thing they're playing for is top half, which isn't really that significant. So we obviously we know what Liverpool are fighting for. So like I say, that was a, a big worry. Thankfully, we responded almost instantaneously. And I agree with you, um, Chloe, that we, we did start to gain more control of the game from the sort of 30, 30th minute mark. Then I think the start of the second half was a little bit scrappy. Um, and probably that would suit Aston Villa more, you'd say. Um, and then w- once we, we got the goal um, with Mane about midway through the half, I think maybe, maybe like you say there, Chloe, you were waiting for Liverpool to really sort of put their stamp on the game. I didn't think we did that. Uh, I thought we we wasted the openings that we had. We ended up kind of hanging on, as I kind of alluded to in my review. And the, the one thing that maybe disappointed me about it, and obviously the, the main thing is just satisfaction of, of the three points and, and staying in the fight. But the main thing that disappointed me, I think, was, I don't know if you two agree with this, was the game management at the end. Because it just felt like we could put maybe five passes together when we got the ball back, and then we'd give it back to them in really sloppy fashion. Um, there were some, you know, really sort of frustrating moments there towards the end. And I do think, you know, if there is a slight weakness in this Liverpool team as kind of an elite side, it might be kind of managing games. We know in the past this season we've thrown leads away, for example, um, and that's maybe something that that could cost us kind of in the bigger picture. But yeah, just just last night, I think we were a little bit fortunate because we really weren't able to shut the game down um, in the in the manner that you kind of expect. So yeah, th- that that's the kind of thing it became of just of just getting over the line really, rather than maybe showing the the golfing class that was there. Because you know Villa played really well. I don't think Liverpool particularly did, to be honest. Yeah, I think we were sloppy throughout the entire game, to be honest, um, from start to finish. Some of the things that were happening. I mean, Allison. That part where he just passes it against the striker and then has to slip on the floor to clear it. I've got no idea what he's doing. Um, you know, there was so Fabinho must have had four moments at least before he went off. Um, we, we couldn't hold the ball for, for some reason. We just, with our back to goal, anything, we couldn't keep hold of it. And you've mentioned the offside there. And I want to get your perspective on it, Dan, because... You know what frustrates the life out of me, and this is something that can lead to a goal, but you know it might not always. Is when someone's offside, it's not given, and then they get a corner. Mm. They get a corner from it being like an offside not being given when it should be offside. The Reds in that moment, they didn't play onto the whistle, so that's our fault. It seemed like we we were waiting for that whistle, and we felt like it should have been there. And it never came. And by the time that we were over thinking that the whistle should be gone, the ball was in the back of the net. But also, it's the case of we are under pressure from a person who's in an offside position. And we are now continually under pressure because a person was in an offside position when it wasn't given. I think maybe because the balls then reached the other side of the pitch from where it was. Maybe that's why. But it still felt to me that our defence didn't have the time to reset because we were under pressure. No one did a backwards pass for us to get in shape again. It was very much dead quick and our, our, like at no point had our defence reset. And I think reset's a big word in this little make-up book that they do because every single week it's a different rule. But 
what did you think on the offside? Because it really does my head and when people get... And I guess, you know, it, it is football. You've got to let things go. But it really does my head when, when players even get corners when they should have been offside. Yeah, I, I agree with you on the corner front in particular. It is infuriating. And something similar to that, which winds me up no end when I'm watching football, is corners given um, that are incorrect. <laughs> I don't see... Because if you score off a corner that never was a corner, um, I don't see how that can't be addressed like in play. And it's similar with the offside thing, because obviously we all know now there's VAR and there's officials watching. During the Ollie Watkins, I know there's quite a lot of phases of play, which is what Aston Villa fans will obviously point towards in terms of Liverpool should have dealt with those subsequent phases. But you're right, we never really reset ourselves. And we never got the opportunity to deal with the situation because we were scrambling back, trying to deal with Ollie Watkins. You could see Massive and Van Dyke were almost arms in the air saying, we're pretty confident that was offside. What's going on? By which point, Villa have got another attack forming and obviously it ends up leading to the goal, which, like I said earlier, defend, defending wasn't particularly outstanding for. But it all stems from what was an offside situation. So I don't understand... The linesman clearly hasn't picked that up. And, you know, we've all seen mistakes from linesmen. That happens all the time, quite frankly. But I don't understand how, almost as that play's going on, the VAR can't be looking back and going, actually, there's an offside in there. And almost before the ball ends up in the back of the net, the referee could know from the VAR that it's either tight or it is definitely offside. At which point the ref goes, hang on. Like, I know it's a phase of play situation and they'll, they'll always point back to, oh, we don't go back so many phases. But it wasn't like it was minutes later. We're talking probably in the same minute, the ball's in the back of the net. So I agree with you. I think where we're at now with technology and what's capable and what's possible, I don't see how they are dealing with them situations better as officials. But, I mean, it's all well and good sort of wanting for this perfect world of officiating but we're miles away from it we're absolutely when VAR first came in I was genuinely optimistic that it might improve because I felt like referees clearly needed some help and whatever it was that was going to help them had to be a good thing but now it turns out in my opinion that the referees are simply not of standard and that's the issue because not only they're getting it wrong on the field they're getting opportunities to watch it elsewhere on monitors etc and they're still getting stuff wrong so it's an impossible one to answer, quite frankly. I just think that the standard of refereeing needs to be better um, before we can deal with anything, let alone sort of complex situations like that goal last night. Yeah, I feel like John Moss was one of the, the referees who I think was retiring at the end of the season. Is, I'll yeah. be very, very thankful when that day comes. I think he retired halfway through the first half last night, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, laced up his boots and got off, he did. Um, but... We've mentioned, obviously, defensively, where it went wrong. Attacking-wise, we'll get on to it. I want to know both of your man of the matches, but also, how do you think on the amount of wasted opportunities? I can remember in the first half already, obviously, Mane has a wonderful header, which he puts past the post. Naby Keita, the miss from Naby Keita is actually astonishing. Our professional footballer can somehow do that. I'll never, ever know. Um, but we had. It felt like we had quite a lot of chances there, and Mane ends up picking man of the match up for an absolute sensational header. But who do you think influenced the game the most? And also, is it a case of Liverpool should have 
buried that game, but we never actually took our chances. I'll I'll go first, David, before I bring you in, just for my man of the match, because I think you can obviously pick Mane, which would be one of my options. But if it wasn't Mane, I genuinely think it would be Jordan Henderson, because I just felt since the moment he came on, he had some kind of composure about him, and then we got our foot on the ball. Yet we had spells where we were under pressure and we were a bit, still a bit sloppy, but then the team was sloppy as a whole on the night. I just think Jordan Henderson kept us moving. He had some big blocks in there. His press was there, um, and I think he was he was a player we were crying out for. Uh, once you know you saw that midfield three for the first twenty minutes. Yeah, I can I completely agree. Um with that to be honest um and the, the thing is like with that game last night i don't think there was a standout performer at all um to be fair it's probably one of the harder man of the match decisions to make and it wasn't like it was a terrible performance or anything it just that there wasn't i think everyone kind of had an up and down uh game to be honest um but the reason i'd say henderson um as well is i think it was about the 26 27th minute he came on i want to say um, when after Fabinho got injured, obviously, um, and there was a graphic that that flashed up at some point in the second half. I can't remember exactly when it was, um, and it said I think it was possession since the 60th minute, and you saw like a huge differential in Liverpool's favour. Sorry, possession since the 30th minute, um, and there was a huge differential in our favour. So that really spoke to I think the impact that Henderson made. I don't think it's a coincidence. Um, like you say, Chloe, I think he did have a a huge effect and he did it did look like his presence was needed to be honest um obviously we saw the extent that Fabinho struggled earlier on and probably more evidence really last night of, of Henderson um being quite strong in the number six position and uh, it'll be interesting to see how much involvement he has there the remainder of this season and certainly next season where I think he might he might play there a fair bit to be honest um in terms of like the other part of your question about um, the attack and and maybe not taking the opportunities that we had. It's a difficult one, to be honest, because um, you know, you, you mentioned the the cater one, um, the the man I had that that went just went past the post and I think as well there was a few openings in there that didn't lead to a chance. But if we make the right decision it, it's a huge opportunity. So I think you you gotta kinda consider them too. Um and that was kind of agonizing to be honest. Um, and we know that goal difference is potentially going to be a factor. Um, if Man City lose the game, then then that's what it's going to come down to. Um, me personally, um, whether this is the right approach, I don't know, but I'm not thinking too much about that right now because I think we've just got to be thankful that we won yesterday because obviously goal difference isn't going to be a factor at all. Um, you know, if we draw, if we draw that game, because um, I thought like. Out of possession, uh, Liverpool were, were off it yesterday. You know, Gerard talked about finding ways to hurt Liverpool, but I don't think he thought it'd be that easy. You know, we saw kind of players just able to drive into space um, through the midfield, and then they weren't really under any pressure as they tried to kind of find find the runner with a pass. Um, and that was, you know, I think that's something we normally only see when we play the very top sides. Um, so we were we looked exposed yesterday. Um, and, you know, you talk about our chances at one end at the other. You've got that Ings header, which he absolutely should have scored. Alisson made a save for Ings as well, obviously. And then I think Chuck Wemmicker was coming in. He, I was convinced he was going to put that in on the rebound. Um, so, 
I mean, the XG as well, 1.83 for Villa and 1.98 for us. Obviously, we edged that a little bit, but that could easily have been a draw yesterday. So I'm not going to be... I feel like it's been a little bit like on the greedy side, but maybe we have to be greedy at this stage equally um, to talk about, about goal difference. Um, so, yeah, I think we've got to look. If, if it, there's going to be a factor, and we'll see what, what City do, I think we've got to really be looking at the, the Southampton game next week. Um given you know the form that they're in and their playing style, that might be an opportunity for us uh, on that score. But like I say, ultimately, right now, I'm just relieved that we, we got the three points because they could easily have, ju- have just been one yesterday. Yeah, they did have some absolutely massive chances as well. Um, that Danny Ings one, in the end, nearly gave everyone in this household a heart attack. I've never screamed now so loud in my life. Um, Dan, I'll come to you. Who was your man of the match? I mean, also, just before you give me the answer, your, your fan favourite, Luis Diaz, was also boss as well. And as I knew that, you know, he was going to be taken off at some point because he's a must for that uh, FA Cup final. But who was your man of the match? Yeah, Diaz was superb. Um, obviously, gets the assist as well for the Mane goal. Um, but yeah, another, another night whereby he sort of looks like probably the main threat. I know Salah wasn't playing, but... As good as Mane has been, you know, in terms of getting the ball and driving at people, I thought Diaz again was sort of the main weapon last night. So, you know, it just shows you how far he's come in such a short space of time, really, his Liverpool career. But for me, I, I can't look past Jordan Henderson. I agree with what you said and I agree with what Dave said in terms of not particularly being a standout performer. Um, some good moments from, from most players, really, but also some moments that you'd probably want to forget, I reckon, for most. Um, none more so than Naby Keita and that missed shot, if you can call it a shot, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I think Jordan Henderson is probably the most accomplished performer, whether it was because our display generally improved um, because we got better when Fabinho went off. <laughs> but I think Henderson definitely brought some sort of balance to the whole performance that we desperately needed at the time because we were struggling to cope with Aston Villa, even though the game was level, we really struggled to cope. So I think Henderson's influence on the side in terms of what he is as a leader and the captain was important, but I think he deserves a lot of credit for his performance because I can remember one poor pass out of play. Um, But aside from that, I thought he was very neat, very organised, and he kept the ball, which was which is imperative, quite frankly. Yeah, 100%. And I also enjoy that he screams at everyone to, you know, be better, basically. Um, I mean, there was one time where he he swore at Trent and said, like, basically, could you just do the correct thing? (laughs) Uh, Which is always enjoyable to see. Um, But before we do move on to the big news surrounding Liverpool Football Club and also just big news headlines in football, um, something that I want to bring up with you two is another kind of referee thing that I just don't understand. And it happened again last night and it happens in every single game, um, especially Liverpool ones. And that is when there's a corner. Last night we were getting fouled in the box for a corner. And John Moss stops play before we can kick the ball in to basically tell their defenders, you're falling in there, I'm going to have to give a pen if you do it again. I don't understand for the life of me why that's not played out 
and why you know either give the foul and the penalty or the foul the other way and give a free kick why why is it why did they come in a minute before well seconds before a corner is taken and tell them basically to stop doing it otherwise you're going to give a penalty or a free kick away um david do you do you understand why that is i mean i don't think it ever used to be like that it's since var's came into it that referees are now not letting the play go on and, and see what happens but my take on this is let it happen and just give the foul either way that's kind of the only way that the players are, are going to learn as well um i think because at the moment i think the reason why you do see them grappling so much in the penalty area is because they know that nine times out of ten there isn't really going to be consequences for that um so I think the only way to stop it is to almost shock the players and 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 give the and give the decisions. Um, but obviously you you've got to kind of do that uh, both ways, and you've got to be consistent with it. And it's one of them where they probably feel like if they did maybe police it quite strictly, then they're going to give about five penalties a game. But it's what I think, like I say, it's, it would be a case of once the deterrent is clearly there, I think you you would see it stop. I think the issue with it is like you know we've seen a few incidents this season where it's been enforced and I think there was a game um against Watford at Anfield. I think it was a corner, it might have been a free kick, um, where where Kuchka um basically rugby tackled Jota. Um and that got given in the penalty and rightly so um in the box. But I do wonder if there was other I mean that was quite an extreme example, but I do wonder if maybe there was other fan bases watching that and thinking, hang on we've had very similar kind of incidents that don't get given. So I think you've got to be consistent with that. You've either got to, you've either almost got to say that it's a bit of a free for all, which I personally wouldn't be a fan of, or you've got to clamp down on it. And I think that's, you know, at the start of every season, we kind of see these new directives, whether or not they last for the full campaign is up for debate, but maybe that is the kind of thing that we could see at the start of the next season, you know, saying to referees, um, all the, all these kind of antics at, at corners we need to clamp down on because you are right, it is a bit of a, it's a bit silly to be honest, some of the stuff that goes on um, and is seemingly allowed within the context of the rules. Yeah, and I'll, I'll quickly get your opinion on it, Dan, because to me it just seems absolutely stupid why you're stopping a game to basically tell someone, I'm about to give a foul, if you do that again, just give the foul, just give the foul. <laughs> Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I was going to reference the same uh, the same one Dave did there, which obviously happened with Jota a few weeks ago. Um, I think at the time people were sort of saying it clearly is a foul, and it clearly, you know, it clearly can't be allowed to go on. But how many times do we see it? And if they start giving them, how many will we see in matches? Which, which is probably right, but it won't take long before defenders stop doing that sort of thing. Because if you keep giving the penalty away every time, you're sort of over exuberant in the way you're dealing with an attacker you're gonna stop doing it eventually and I think there's a couple of instances last night where Bayer thought you know the ref could easily blow and just give a penalty here I think there was one in particular Virgil van Dijk had started his run from sort of outside the box and there was two people like proper stopping him essentially getting in the thought if you kind of go for it and they end up dragging you down it's just got to be given so yeah, it'd it, probably be new directives on that in the summer, like there so often is about, about stuff that goes on in matches. And there'd probably be new offside stuff and potentially another version of handball rule coming in as well. So it, you are right in what you say. You know, if, if the ref just gave the foul 
either way, I suppose. Um, eventually, over time, people would cotton on and stop doing it. But it's quite, um, it would be an extreme course of action, is the way I'd put it, because if you started giving away, probably, it better be a penalty a game, I, I would suggest, of stuff like that for a few weeks, which would be interesting, but it might be what it needs to sort of filter it out. Yeah, 100%. I mean, on no other area of the pitch, Jordan play, can John Moss stop the ball, stop everything from happening and just say, if you do that again, you know, I'm going to have to give it a foul. It's just, it's a foul or it's not a foul. Um, and I think there's too many warnings there. Um, because it, it does my head and when people get a second chance if, if it's a penalty and if someone's being stupid in the box because you know VAR's there you can't hold people anymore just just give the foul and I know there'll be a bit of inconsistency but it's much like we already only have probably 60 out of 90 minutes with a football in play never mind with you stopping every corner to tell someone don't do that otherwise I'm going to have to give a penalty it'll carry on but anyway, enough of referees and reels being absolutely shambolic. Um, we'll move over onto the news side within football. And uh, a massive one with our match winner the other day with Sadio Mane. Uh, news that Bayern Munich are said to be wanting Sadio Mane. Um, Neil Jones has said... Uh, Liverpool plan to reopen talks at the end of the season with Sadio Mane and they've said any offer may well depend on the outcome of negotiations with Salah. Uh, Dan, I'll come back to you. When I read this the other day, I thought, surely not. Uh, that That is, I think he's as deserving of um, a contract as, Sad- as Salah is at this moment in time. And I would not be trading him for any one of those buying players at this moment in time. Um, no, at this exact moment in time, um, there's an argument to say that Mane is more deserving of that contract than Salah, which obviously in the, the wider scheme of things is very much tongue-in-cheek. But yeah, they're probably about equal, I'd say, um, of equal importance. Uh, Mane's been reborn, hasn't he, in recent weeks in that central striker's role. As we saw last night, obviously gets the match winner um, and, and played really well as well in the middle so yeah I think I'm not entirely sure there's massive amount in the links um I know well I think we know Mane was or his agent was talking to somebody at Bayern Munich at least um it's a move that would make sense I suppose from Sadio Mane's perspective because Bayern Munich are another you know, massive football club um he does only have that year left on his contract and like Salah there is decisions to be made um I still think it's unlikely we keep all three of Firmino, Mane and Salah. Uh, unfortunately, I suppose as things stand, Firmino probably looks the most likely to leave because his injury problems just, just won't go away. We spoke about it a few times on here. He keeps picking up these injuries this season. <clears throat> and obviously, he's just coming back from another one as well. So it's not been ideal for him when you're looking to get a new contract potentially. But... Yeah, I agree. I think Liverpool should be looking to tie down Sadio Mane most definitely, um, particularly in light of his recent form, like I say. And there was links, wasn't there, with Serge Gnabry as well, in terms of maybe a swap deal there. I think Gnabry's a very good player, um, but he's not he's not Sadio Mane. So that deal doesn't make sense from a Liverpool perspective. Um, and in terms of age... He's not showing. I mean, there was times last season where by Mane, you started to doubt and you started to question whether his 
his time at the sort of peak of his powers had come to an end. But I think he's put them doubts to bed this year um, with his form for Senegal and for Liverpool. So I don't see us cashing in on him necessarily. I think they might try and sort of negotiate with all three, but the terms will be interesting um, in which they do so, particularly with Firmino, like I say. Um, I can't see them all getting sort of bumper new contracts. I think there'll have to be some sort of give and take um, across the board. But yeah, Sadio Mane is definitely one we should be looking to um, keep hold of um, for next season. Yeah, 100%. And I don't know about you, David, but I'm sick and tired of Salah and his contract negotiations. I've just had enough of it at this point. It seems like everything is around that Salah contract. And um, I thought maybe with Jürgen signing a new contract, maybe that's what could move it along a bit. But it seems like everything keeps coming back to this. Everything resolves around this Salah contract. And ever since his agent tried to take the piss and laughed at Jürgen Klopp on social media... I've got to say it, Salah has been awful since then. He has, it just has to be said, he's not been good enough. Um, and it's lucky that he's been phenomenal, phenomenal other parts of the season. And also the fact that we've got these other superstars in the team that can carry us when someone is out of form. But it's got to be said that how, you know, how many times does this Salah contract need to come up? Um, and I'm happy that the, the players can put it behind them. Because it seems like every week, you know, someone's interviewing Salah, asking about it. And if it's not that, then people are turning around saying he's not playing good enough, which I don't think he has been. Um, I think he's had a couple of good games in there, but not an outstanding. Um, and now we're hearing that what happens with Sadio Mane may well depend on what happens with Salah. I mean, the dynamics here are interesting because, you know, I think you probably remember earlier in the season, you had journalists writing things like, you know, when Salah scored big goals, it was like he's putting real pressure on Liverpool here um, to agree to his demands because he's showing his value. But what's the situation now when he has lost form? Um, and that, that surely weakens his kind of ne- negotiating position, really. So interesting from from that point of view, to be honest. Um, I do think Salah is kind of, you know, the past couple of games have been, I think, tricky for him. Um, I think he has been finding ways to contribute that aren't goals, so I think he does deserve credit for that, but there's no kind of denying that um, you would want a bit more. And we probably thought that the United game was was going to ignite him. I certainly did. It's a bit disappointing that maybe he hasn't kicked on from that um, in terms of, you know, getting the goal scored and such back. Um, I mean, there's still time uh, within the season, but yeah, it has been kind of an extended run now where he, we aren't getting the kind of the goal scored and output that we'd like, um, while still obviously winning winning games for, for the most part. Um, with with Mane, um, it's almost the opposite kind of situation because I think before that game against Chelsea in January, I want to say it had been like nine or ten games since he'd scored. And with that, plus the run last season that Dan mentioned, I think it was a real 50-50 decision, contract-wise, to be honest. Um, but in light of his form in 2022, when he's been, been massive, really, in terms of goals he scored, um, arguably been one of our best players, I think it's very much swung in his favour in terms of the argument for giving him a new deal. And I think the line that um, Neil Jones had in, in his report about 
basically implying that it might only be one or the other in terms of Salah and Mane um, is, is significant. And with that kind of policy, I don't think it's financial. I think Liverpool could afford you know, to renew both players. Um, but I think it's more about this idea of not wanting to hand out you know, pay rises, long contracts to players who are kind of 10 and 30. Um, so they're going to be kind of coming towards the mid-30 at the end of the deal, and they don't think that's sensible. But the counter that I'd have with, with Mane for that is that this season we've seen him evolve. You know, he's not kind of stagnant. Um, you know, we've seen him take up this number nine position, and he's arguably Liverpool's best option there at this moment in time. I think that bodes really well in terms of his longevity um, into his 30s, um, to be honest. So I think it would be a little bit, I don't you can have this kind of binary thinking about players, you know, moving into their 30s and just inherently declining. I think it's about adapting your game. And it's something I've said before on here, I think so. The last couple of things I'd say on this are, number one, I do wonder how Klopp's new contract is going to affect it. You know, you mentioned that um, Chloe with Salah maybe not having the immediate impact on that one. But I do think that the thing with it is the fact that Klopp's now committed till 2026 means that, um, and potentially, hopefully even longer, means that he would probably have more of a say in terms of pressuring um, FSG to hand out these contracts, which I think he played quite an important role in in the Henderson deal, for example. Um, and I think because he's going to be part of it, then he his sort of stake is larger and hopefully I think he'll be pushing for, for contracts for, for certainly both of them. Hopefully that has an impact. I think the dynamics might be important there but even if Liverpool have decided kind of secretly that they aren't going to give a new deal to Sadio Mane I don't think at all that um, they'll sell him this summer regardless of, of what kind of offers come in I think they'll see it as he's more valuable to us for what he can give us next season and then leaving on a free um, I don't think there's any question of, of players being sold I think they're more likely to just walk away at the end of their contract so it'll be interesting to see I think you know, we keep hearing the end of the season for talks. Well, if it gets to maybe the start of next season, there hasn't been a breakthrough, then you would start to kind of be fair in the West with, with one or both of these players. So we'll see uh, what happens. But yeah, it's like Dan says, isn't it? There's, there's no way all three are going to be renewed. And um, if it's only one of Mane and Salah, then who knows what, what kind of the future is going to look like with the attack, really. Yeah, 100%. Both of these players are absolutely adored by Liverpool fan base. We both want them. Um to obviously sign new contracts and hopefully that can be resolved uh, but moving on to another uh, headline news for Liverpool it was from yesterday's game actually Fabinho um, it, he did something with the ball I think his control was awful and then trying to recover the fact that someone had nicked it off him it seemed like uh, he pulled his hamstring or has done something with his hamstring as soon as that happened, I wasn't even bothered if they scored at that point. I was thinking to myself, oh dear. Um, we've got two of the biggest games coming up, one of them on Saturday. Um, but we've also got a Champions League final. Uh, we're trying to go for the league in case City slip up. And Fabinho, as we all know, is a vital part. How concerned are you, Dan? Uh, yeah, majorly concerned, obviously, because of Fabinho's importance that that we all know, I think, is absolutely huge, quite frankly. Um, I mean, Henderson did do well when he came on last night in the role, but 
different type of player altogether. Um, Henderson can probably perform better in that six when Liverpool are dictating play and dictating terms like we were for large parts of last night against Aston Villa, even though it was a test. I think against better opposition, with no disrespect, I think Fabinho is by far and away the best option in that six role because he's just so good at breaking up play and he's so good at winning us the ball back when we need it. Um, and obviously, like you say, with FA Cup finals and Champions League finals on the horizon, he's imperative to us, he really is. Um, and that's part of the reason I want us to sign more natural cover in the summer. I think that's one of the areas we really do need to strengthen. Um, but what I will say is, on, on last night's injury, um, he had a torrid time while he was on the pitch. Let, let's be frank about it. I'm not suggesting for one moment that he thought, I need to get off here. I'm pretty confident he did feel something. But when you see him walk off, which is never something we've seen before um, with players, but then Jurgen Klopp after the game said he was quite positive about the, the problem. Um, and I think there's been reports this morning um, suggesting that Fabinho's already indicated that he might be OK, potentially even for Saturday. I, I would say that was a stretch um, for Saturday. Could obviously get any sort of hamstring issue in just a few days. You think, oh, I'm not sure. Listen, I hope it is, of course, but I think sort of longer term, I don't think we're going to have a problem there in terms of Fabinho, particularly for the Champions League. I don't see that being a, an issue. I hope I'm right, obviously, in saying that. Um, but yeah, I, I'm confident that he'll be OK. In terms of what happens for the FA Cup final, even if he was on the bench, you know, and he was fit enough to do that and fit enough to make, maybe do 20, 30 minutes at the end, that would probably suffice. But if not, I think we're looking at Henderson again, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, um, the only hope I've got here is the fact that he didn't go straight down the tunnel. He sat down. Hopefully, it's just precautionary subs, really, that um, hopefully it was something there. He felt a twinge, but it'll be fine. Um, once again, this weekend might be a bit too soon. Uh, David, do you think from it, I mean, I saw Virgil van Dijk walk around the pitch and was hoping that it wasn't that bad and he'd actually done his ACL. So what do I know? Um, but I'm really hoping that this this injury isn't bad and um, because he's just he's so so important to this Liverpool side, isn't he? Well, if you remember back to the episode we did after um, Villarreal, um, when Liverpool basically restricted them to one shot the whole game after the home leg, we were talking about how important he was to Liverpool's structure off the ball, um, and I think that kind of just epitomised it. Really, he is right at the heart of the spine of the team and it would be a big loss probably up there with the bigger losses that we could have in terms of a single injury so it's definitely a worry I mean we've had two hot takes um from from Dan in, in this podcast first first he was saying that um Salah was maybe less deserving of a new contract than Mane and now he's implied that Fabinho has has bottled it um <laughs> at Villa Park but um I'll own it I'll own them <laughs> well, you know, it act you actually do hit on something in a sense because I think there have actually been a few games recently where Fabinho has kind of been off it a little bit. Last night, obviously, being one of them, probably the most extreme. Um, and then you almost attempted to wonder if there's kind of been a building fatigue or maybe a tiny issue there. Obviously, that is pure hindsight. I accept that. Um, maybe that that came to a head uh, yesterday, uh, and I think. Partly, it's inevitable that um, there was going to be an injury setback, 
given the intensity of fixtures. Um, but now, yeah, we just got to see um, what it is in terms of a timeline. Personally, I don't think he will play on Saturday. Um, just my prediction because, you know, we saw Jossa, for example, probably rush back for, for the other final. I think it's different when it's an attacker, though, um, to a midfielder. Because I think you can kind of maybe afford to take more of a gamble there. You, it kind of has more potential to blow up in your face if you have a midfielder who's not 100% fit. If you said to me right now that Fabinho doesn't play any other games this season except the Champions League final, I'd probably be tempted to just take that, to be fair. Um, you know, he's obviously saying it's not that bad. I think there's a major element there if he knows how important the fixtures are um, and he's trying to sort of indicate that he'd be willing to to fight through it because he desperately doesn't want to miss these games. But unless it's just pure hamstring tightness and there's no sort of strain there or anything like that, then I don't see how he doesn't miss at least a couple of games. And, you know, the Champions League final is sort of 17, 18 days away. And I think even if it is kind of a strain, then even kind of the, the lower end of the scale is kind of two weeks. So... You'd have to be kind of lucky with the injury and then you're sort of thinking he might not get a huge amount of time to train before that, if it is. But I don't want to speculate too much, um, but I, I don't necessarily think he'll he'll play at the weekend. Obviously, I'm really hoping he does because, like I say, I know he's he's really important. Um, yeah, so it's worrying because it feels like it could potentially be um, a big injury. But I'm hoping that the positive kind of noises that we've heard up to this point indicate that he will at least be all right for um, for Paris. Yeah, you mentioned Woody there, and we'll move on to the last bit of news that we have to talk about, which can be another Woody for Liverpool. Um, and I don't want to go too much into this because I just can't be bothered, to be honest, because I'm not too sure how anyone's supposed to keep up. I really don't. Um, the news is that Haaland has basically signed for Manchester City um, as long as the rest of the paperwork's all done. Um, but they have announced it, that there is an agreement there. So, uh, I mean, I, their fullbacks are like 200 mil for, for four of them. Uh, so, I mean, I, I just 50 mil in hindsight for Haaland um, is good. Is His wages, however, you're near 400,000 a week, aren't you there, Dan? Um, but what do you think Liverpool do here? Because... When I see something like that, I, I, I serious, I just don't know how anyone can compete. I don't. The whole mindset of Man City saving football by not letting Liverpool win a league and things like that. I, I think it's the other way around. How is someone who just realizes, okay, we've got a mega team, but still not good enough to win the Champions League apparently because we bottled it within two minutes. Let's go and buy one of the world's best right now. Um, on top of the fact that they're already getting another striker from uh, somewhere else. I want to say his name's Alvarez. It might not be Alvarez. I've got not a clue. Um, but I just I feel like I just can't be bothered. <laughs> I'm sure that'll change, Chloe, um, when the season gets underway next year. But I, I see what you're saying. Um, and it, it is just kind of... It, what it does do is it makes a mockery of, of Guardiola's previous comments um, in terms of not being able to afford certain things. I mean, if they weren't already laughable enough to begin with, um, it's just, yeah. And what I also find is, like, he gets a lot of credit for the job he does, and rightfully so, he's a wonderful manager. But clearly he's not been able to fix something um, in terms of Champions League 
um, during his time at Man City. So he's just throwing more money at the problem, which is what he's doing. Because whilst the 51 million release clause is a bargain, there's absolutely no two ways about it. You know, when you're factoring everything else, and I know City fans are getting annoyed at the media and such like factoring in other things, but when they're so so extraordinarily high in terms of agents' fees and money to his dad and the wages, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's you know it's easy to do, and when, in my opinion, success has been built purely on money, which is what Manchester City's had. Um, when they do something like this, it's it's the easy thing to focus on the finances behind it. So, yeah, that's it is the way it is. It, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily bother me. And about eighteen months ago, it might have done. In from a Liverpool perspective, now I think about eighteen months ago, it might have done. Um, if they designed Haaland as he is now, then if that makes any sense whatsoever. But I'm just so confident now in Jurgen Klopp's ability as a football manager and as manager of Liverpool that I just think we'll compete again. Like, if you go on on Twitter today, which I'm sure most people will, including you guys, you'll see, uh, to use, to coin Dave's phrase, a hot take from one of TalkSport's favourites. Um, basically, suggesting that Liverpool have to do something. Liverpool have to act. Um, on the back of Manchester City signing Haaland. And I think we will. I think we'll sign potentially a midfielder, like I alluded to earlier, and maybe strengthen in different areas of the squad. I don't think we need to sign a £100 million striker, necessarily. Um, I don't think that's the way to go. Well, we've got three of the Premier League's top five goal scorers, I think I'm right in saying. We're currently level on points with Manchester City at the top of the Premier League, albeit they've got a game in hand. We've got a Champions League final coming up, an FA Cup final coming up, and we've already won the Carabao Cup. But Liverpool apparently have to do something because Manchester City have signed, you know, a world-class striker, granted. But that'll change things for them. They'll have to change the way they play. His goal-scoring record's phenomenal in the Bundesliga and in Austria beforehand. Premier League's toughest league in the world. His injury record isn't fantastic. I, I just back... Jurgen Klopp to get it right. He he said in reaction to the Haaland news himself that he didn't sign his contract extension believing that Manchester City were just going to be stagnant and they weren't going to develop further and they weren't going to throw more money at the problem because that's what they always do. He signed the contract extension because he believed in his own ability and the football club. So I think we should all do the same, quite frankly. Um, and yeah, that's my take on it. Yeah, 100%. I mean, when I say CBA, I mean... I get it, I do get it. For the case of, like, I totally believe in what Liverpool are doing and I wouldn't change any... Like, I'd like to spend a bit more here and there, but I wouldn't like to do what they do because the way we do it means that when we win something, it means so much more. Um, But it is annoying when you're so close to someone and then they can just go and throw this money about as if it's like as if they haven't already spent two hundred million on fullbacks. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It is a case of no one can compete financially, and especially not Liverpool. It's not that we probably can't; it's probably that we won't, and that's okay. I don't want to spend loads there, um. But I mean, David, the underdog story continues, doesn't it? Well. Erling Haaland is, is like the latest uh, sports washing instrument that uh, that that city have got, um, and it could be a pretty effective one to be honest. Um, you know, we knew that they were gonna, you know, buy a striker this summer. Realistically, you know, we we saw that they chased Kane last summer. It was inevitable that they were gonna bring in kind of a superstar number nine uh, this year. Um, 
I think it does put pressure on Liverpool, maybe not so much in the window, but I said kind of earlier in the season when it became clear that he was edging towards City, I think it might put more pressure on us to maximise this season um, because it's kind of a terrifying partnership, in theory at least, between Haaland, who, you know, it is the Bundesliga. And we've seen players score a lot of goals there and not being able to translate that into the Premier League. But he strikes me as someone who's kind of a bit of a robot, um, to be honest. And I think he could kind of be kind of the next Cristiano Ronaldo in terms of his kind of his output and and this kind of presence that he has. Um, and he obviously has chosen Man City because he thinks he can he he and they can just be a dominant force in football for for a decade and, and kind of win everything. Um, but, you know, he's not going to score a goal a game in the Premier League. Um, it's going to be challenges. Dan alluded to it there. Um, that, that crop up, it's not It's not going to be 100% seamless. It's going to be naive to expect that it would be. Um, it's difficult to say how much he improves them because, you know, they could get 95 points this season. They've scored 89 goals already, which is the same amount as Liverpool and they've played a game less. They've been more clinical than Liverpool. Um, when you look at how they've done compared to their expected goals. So this whole striker thing isn't actually a big issue for City. Um, I do think he he makes them better. It's hard to say that he doesn't. And maybe there has been one or two games where they have missed that kind of um, clinical penalty box presence and maybe he pushes them back towards the 100-point mark. But there isn't much margin there to get better. I think one thing... Um, that, that Jamie Carragher said yesterday was that it's not going to be about points, it's going to be about games, um, unlike the Real Madrid one, for example, in terms of being that kind of match winner um, in those in those big games. But yeah, it's certainly, you know, it's certainly a blow um, to read about it, but it's obviously not a surprise. And in terms of how Liverpool respond in the market, you know, I agree with Dan um, in that Liverpool... Liverpool can't, I think, base their transfer activity on kind of external pressure, really, and what Man City do. They've got to really focus on themselves. I think that it does up the ante in terms of the need to address any kind of weaknesses that you have. Um, And obviously, it'd be great to see us respond with a a blockbuster signing of our own from almost kind of a vanity perspective and, you know, bring in someone like, Bellingham, for example, in an ideal world. But I do think, um, just to finish and, and echo really what Dan was saying, you know, if Liverpool sign um, Schwamini from from Monaco, uh, maybe another midfielder or a forward in there as well, just to really, you know, um, consolidate the depth and like a right side of Costas Simakas um, as well to maybe take some of the burden off Trent Alexander-Arnold. And you see kind of this kind of evolution um, continuing and plugging the very few gaps we've got left in the squad. Then I back, I back Klopp to um, still be able to compete with um, Haaland and Man City. It's just, I think, like I say, it does up the ante in terms of we can't afford to go into next season really with any uh, weaknesses in our squad because it's like you say, Chloe. You know, you're competing against what is kind of a one billion pound Petro squad um, in effect, um, and you can't. We've seen this season already. There's no room for error. There's going to probably be even less uh, next season. So I think that's how it changes the dynamics, um, personally. 
Yeah, it very much does feel like I'm playing a bit of career mode and I've just uh, turned the, the £1 billion uh, pound, um, inflation on which you can do on this year's FIFA. It kind of feels like that, but it has done it for seasons. As we uh, round up this, let's talk about Liverpool finally. Um, Liverpool are going to be in an FA Cup final. We are going to Paris for the European Cup. Uh, the Reds are still in with a shout at this Premier League. Um, we've got four massive games to come um, and let's just absolutely go for it. Get behind the team uh, and let's hope that on some miracle world uh, we win all four. If not, let's at least win three. Um, David, I'll come back to you finally to talk about FA Cup final preview and build up um, and anything you might want to say to, to round the entire podcast off. Yeah, well, um, to preview the FA Cup final, we're going to be uh, putting a video um, on our YouTube channel. Um, so the link to that is going to be uh, in the description. Um, so just subscribe to that channel and watch out for that. Um, and normally on there, we just post clips of each episode. Um, the only other things are, remember to um, give the podcast a five-star rating on review on any other podcast platforms as well. And yeah, I just echo what um, what you say, Chloe, really. My, my mind says at the moment is what is the point even though it's unlikely to win a quadruple now what is the point of of doing anything except believing really you know it's improbable but it's not completely out of the question and as a football fan you've got to kind of just almost be kind of optimistic as much as you can because that that's what it's about it's about the highs and the lows and about being along for the ride so yeah, that's my attempt at sort of some Bloxham-esque uh, motivation <laughs> at the end of the podcast. I wanted always. Tom, would you like again? I I can't follow that from Dave, quite okay. frankly. Um, no, being there for the ride is a very astute way of putting it, and I completely agree with that because I said something similar the other day. Um, these are the good days. This these really are the good days. Like, and that's why you just got to embrace it. Um, and we are competing with a, a massive, you know, a massive budget, unfortunately, in many senses. And a football club that has just thrown money at the situation time and time again. And we're competing in a different way. Well, spending our own money, but we should be incredibly proud of what we are doing and what we've already done. Um, it's been monumental and it's been a journey um, and it's still going on. So, yeah, I completely agree with you guys. Yeah, I mean... Just imagine being us, eh? Um, until the next one, up the reds.